I invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. In a few weeks, we will embark upon a verse-by-verse exposition of the Gospel of Mark. But until that time, I believe the Spirit of God would have me address issues pertaining to the church. And I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, the church's social identity. You know, from the inception of Calvary Bible Church that in many ways began in our living living room about 25 years ago, I've witnessed God's faithfulness in preserving and growing this church both spiritually as well as physically down through the years. And of course, this makes us more and more a target of the enemy. And whenever I see things going well in the church is when I get more and more on red alert. And I confess I am on red alert this morning. I'm concerned for our church in this age of militant unbelief. We live in a country where our leaders manifest staggering incompetence and corruption and immorality. We even now have a Supreme Court nominee that cannot define the word woman. It's staggering. Worse yet, we have the false social gospel and the woke cult drowning evangelicalism in a tsunami of racist deceptions. And on and on it goes, despite the fact that the Apostle Paul warns us in Colossians 2 and verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So I'm burdened for churches all around the world that name the name of Christ, including our church. And I'm certainly burdened for Many of you who I know have fled from these kinds of churches. We've got more on the way from various states. Churches that are as shallow as water on a plate, that they're superficial, they're worldly. In many cases, they're downright apostate. And you're fleeing. You're trying to find some place where you can worship God and hear his word proclaimed with clarity. And notwithstanding all of these evils that are out there, when we measure ourselves against the biblical standard, beloved, we too have much to be concerned about. We need to examine our own hearts. This has been true of every church. Certainly in this church, there are those that name the name of Christ, but you don't know Christ. There are hypocrites. There are ungodly, worldly people. You know, we all need the gospel every day, don't we? We need forgiveness every day. In Romans 7, 21, you will recall Paul lamented, saying that he knew how the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. And so we could go to 2 Corinthians 7, 1 and heed the warning there that says, so let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, it's worth noting that immediately after the birth of the church that we read about in our scripture reading, 
the birth of the church there at Pentecost, when thousands were being added to the church, magnificent outpouring of God's grace and power. Immediately during that time, God did something absolutely amazing. He purged the church of sin in Acts 5. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the indwelling spirit seeking to exalt themselves, who presumed upon God's grace right in front of him, in front of all of the people, presuming upon his forbearance, thinking that somehow he would wink at sin. You recall the story, Ananias fell dead there in their midst. Three hours later, his wife Sapphira came in and the same thing happened to her. And in verse 11, of Acts 5 we read, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Wow, how the church has changed over the years, right? In many realms of evangelicalism, Jesus is kind of seen as this smiley-faced God that winks at sin. It escapes their notice that Jesus gave explicit instructions on how to deal with those who sin with impunity in grievous ways within the church, recorded in Matthew 18. And yet very few are willing to pursue these people in love, to bring them to a place of repentance and reconciliation, and if they refuse, to remove them because they are toxic to the church. Paul said in Romans 16, beginning in verse 17, now I urge you, it's the idea of I'm begging you, Brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. And turn away from them, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And in Titus 3.10, we're warned to reject a factious or a divisive man, a Herodicus, a man that's heretical, but is also divisive in the church. We're to do that after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. And yet we have entire churches and denominations that are led by men and women who fit that category. Oh, dear Christian, as Peter said in 1 Peter 4.17, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And he went on to say, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Dear friends, because the Lord Jesus loves his church, he purges his bridal church, he chastens it to purify it. You will recall in Revelation 2 and 3, he calls five out of seven churches in Asia Minor to repentance. All but two of them were in a serious spiritual state of decline and they couldn't see it. Oh, I pray that we will never be in that position. The churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia were spiritually rich, they were faithful. Though from the world's perspective, they were poor, they were persecuted. Some of them doomed for martyrdom, but not so the other five. Each of them called themselves a church, 
of Jesus Christ. They all had their ministry programs. They were all proud of what they were doing. And yet, they were blinded by their own hypocrisy that was leading them to ultimate apostasy and their disappearance. But this morning, I implore each of us to examine our own heart, our own life, our own service for Christ, and our own church in light of not other churches, but in light of the biblical standard. That is the one that we need to look to. We want the world to see what God wants them to see. Thus, the title of my discourse, The Church's Social Identity. We're going to look at the Church of Thessalonica here in a moment, but I wish to, because they are a great example of of what the world should see. But first, I, I wish to give you a little history. This was this was burdening my heart, especially in, in, in a book that I'm writing. I want to remind you of the 16th century Puritans. The pastors in that day were called physicians of the soul. Like we have physicians of the body, they had physicians of the soul, which they deemed more important. Physicians of the body must go through rigorous training. They must be board certified. But today, physicians of the soul can just decide they want to preach someday and they can start a church. So we have many more entrepreneurs than we have truly God-ordained, God-called, God-gifted pastors. In fact, it was illegal in those days for a man to ascend to the sacred desk, meaning to preach, unless he had been trained and ordained by theological peers. Well, this, of course, ruled out any untrained, self-proclaimed entrepreneur pastors. And I want to just read to you a quote from J.I. Packer. He discusses the English Puritans, their quest for holiness and why they are still worth remembering. And something that he said really struck me as he reviewed their history. Let me quote this to you. Their dream was holiness in their own lives and in the lives of those around them. The Puritans didn't talk about the state. They simply talked about conducting all of life in a way that honored God and respected other people. That was their idea of community. The perfect church was a church containing families that practiced holiness and worshiped with a purged liturgy under the leadership of a minister who was a powerful preacher of the Bible. The Puritans hoped that England would one day be converted. As a Christian country, it would be the paragon of a truly godly nation that would become the envy of the rest of the world. People would line up and say, please tell us what is your secret. Please tell us how we can become like you. The Puritan clergy and the lay people who followed them were impressed by the fact that England had never been in a war over religion, which was not the case anywhere else where the Reformation had gone. That was a marvelous gift of God to England. The sense that England had a unique mission was reinforced by the ruin of the Spanish Armada. God had fought for England, they believed. That meant that God had a special vocation for them. 
This shaped the prayers of the Puritans from that time on. They believed that doing everything they could to advance the kingdom of God in England was tremendously important for the welfare of the world. In fact, when Oliver Cromwell invited the Jews to settle in England, it was because he believed that the day was coming when the world would be blessed through the conversion of the Jews. And Richard Baxter, that great pastor, wrote that there were that, that there never was a time in recorded memory when the word of God brought so many people to faith as during those years. And if the commonwealth conditions had continued for a quarter of a century or more, England would have become a kingdom of saints and a wonder of the world. That's what they all wanted. But because of the restoration of the monarchy and the ejections, of Puritan ministers from the Church of England in 1662, it never happened. And indeed, Charles II ascended the throne and he told all of the Puritan pastors to get out and he replaced them with ungodly, worldly, frankly, heretics that embraced much of Roman Catholicism. And England to this day, and basically all of Europe, is spiritually dead. So what does a church look like that doesn't compromise? That doesn't believe that we need to somehow become like the world in order to win it? James 4 says friendship with the world is what? It's enmity with God. And we're going to become like the world so we can attract people? Really? Luke 6, 26, Jesus said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. John 15, 18, he says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before I, it hated you. Now, as we come to 1 Thessalonians 1, we're going to see that Paul lists a set of virtues that set them apart and help them to persevere under the great trials that were theirs during that time in the first century. The distinctive sets of beliefs and values of that nascent church that required them to balance being in the world but not of the world. A unique resocialization process literally had to occur when these people come to faith in Christ. And so they had to preserve their social identity as Christians and still live in this world, in that culture, even as we do. And what we're going to see is this give them great power and opportunities for evangelism. Now, before we look at the text, we might think in our day that what they finally understood was evangelical pragmatism. What they did is they toned down the gospel. They removed the sharp edges. They became more therapeutic, more man-centered, more politically correct. And others would say, no, 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 no. What they did is they embraced the social justice gospel of that day. That's what they did. They got woke. And they started marching with signs that said, Jews' lives matter. And accusing the Gentiles of being racist. And they tried to deconstruct the Gentile, the white power, and redistribute power to the minorities, defund the police give reparations. That's what they did. Not at all. Others might say, no, no, no. They began to preach the prosperity gospel. Tell people that if you come to Jesus, 
He's going to solve all of your problems. He's going to make you healthy and wealthy and successful. And we're going to teach you how to manipulate God so that he will loosen up his grip on all of the goodies and help you out. Well, obviously, none of that happened. And what we're going to see, what the inspired apostle will affirm, is that the source of their God-honoring faithfulness and their power was in their election. Oh, there's that dreaded word that so many hate. But that's what we will see. It was because God had set his love upon them in eternity past. And, his, and in his power, he saved them and he sanctified them. And he used them to the praise of his glory. By the way, I might add that an errant soteriology, in other words, an errant understanding of the doctrine of salvation, will banish people to an island of spiritual infancy. You might fill up churches with that errant soteriology, but it will never have the power that God would have for that church. And this is what we're going to see in our text. Here we're going to see 10 evidences of their election, spirit-empowered virtues that sustained them and empowered them to exalt Christ in a dark world that was watching. Now let me give you a little context here. Very important. Thessalonica was located in the, in the northern uh, part of modern Greece. It was a large seaport town of about a quarter of a million people in that day. The largest and most important city in the Roman province of Macedonia. We know that Paul first came to that city uh, on his second missionary journey. And as a result of his ministry, we learn from the scriptures that many Jews, as well as a number of Gentile proselytes, and even some of the upper class Greek women believed the gospel were miraculously saved. And as we're going to see, these Gentiles turned from their idols to serve the living God. Now, before I read the text, I want you to put yourself where they were in the first century. They were probably gathered on some large portico at some beautiful home or maybe underneath some trees. They may have been down by the beach. We're not really sure. But they're about to hear the word of the living God that had been penned by an apostle inspired by God. An apostle who had previously been forced to flee from their city for his life. And so with an air of absolute excitement, an air of electricity, shall we say, they are ready to hear what God has to say through the inspired apostle. So everyone gets quiet, and they prepare to hear from God himself. And someone stands up and reads this. 1 Thessalonians 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in, your, in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you 
For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia, Donia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Oh, my like water to a, to a dehydrated tongue. This was so refreshing to them. Their souls were parched to hear more of, of, of what God would have them hear so that they would know how to conduct themselves and be encouraged. And so I'm sure they savored every morsel of truth, pondered every sacred thought. And I pray that we all will do the same. Now, as we look at this, a few brief mentions regarding the salutation. Letters to the Greco-Roman world um, followed a standard format. There would be a salutation and then a bo the body of the letter and then the conclusion. And here in the salutation, which is just a fancy word for greeting, in the greeting it says Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. And here Paul humbly uh, includes his co-workers who were serving along with him. Paul, of course, was um, was Saul, that would have been his Jewish name, and it was very uh, common for men who uh, descended from the tribe of Benjamin um, to use that name, and this was where he was from, ultimately. And some of the early church fathers saw some special significance uh, in the Greek here, the name Paulos, uh, because it was derived from the Roman Latin Paulos, actually Paul O.S., from the Latin Paul U.S., which meant little or small. In fact, one of the early church fathers, Christendom, called him the man three cubits tall. A long cubit's about 20 inches, so they estimate he was about five feet tall. And in the Acts of Paul and Thecla, one of the New Testament apocryphal books, they describe Paul as, quote, bald-headed, bow-legged, strongly built, a man small in size, with meeting eyebrows, with a large nose, full of grace, for at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel. So, regardless of his physical stature, we know that Paul regarded himself as very little, right? Uh, he described himself as the very least of the apostles in Ephesians 3.8. And then, of course, he speaks of Silvanus, which is another name for Silas, whom we know very little about. He was probably a Hellenistic Jew and a, a prominent member of the Jerusalem church. Uh, he was sent with Paul to Antioch to communicate uh, the decision of the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And from there, we know that Paul had an argument with Barnabas over John Mark, you recall. And then Paul chose Silas to be his co-worker during his second missionary journey. And we also know that he was a scribe to Peter. 
And then he speaks of, of Timothy. Timothy was a native of Lystra, a city in, in Galatia, which was Asia Minor. Uh, he was Paul's son in the faith, a protege who Paul trusted on various critical missions to attend to the, chair, uh, to the affairs of the, of the churches there. In fact, later he was the pastor of the church at Ephesus, and he was himself imprisoned, as we read in Hebrews 13. So together, these three men were instrumental in founding the church in Thessalonica. So Paul says to the church of the Thessalonians, church, ecclesia, literally the called out ones, or it could be translated the elect ones, especially as we see it used here in connection to the use in verse 4 of the phrase, his choice of you. So to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he emphasizes the very visible union they had with Christ. An exhilarating reality to see a church united to Christ and to see that played out. It's a magnificent, a magnificent truth. He says grace to you, grace. In other words, I want you to experience the fullness of God's love that he has lavished upon you, his unmerited favor in your life. I want you to enjoy the forgiveness of your sins, past, present, and future, and the promise of eternal life. And then I want peace. He says, grace to you and peace. I want you to experience not only the objective peace of being reconciled to God, the one who you have offended, but have now been justified, but also the subjective peace of feeling, experiencing his presence and his power in your life. And then he moves from his salutation to the body of his letter. He begins with verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. And here's why. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of God, of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. So here in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he's thrilled to know that these are true believers. These aren't Christians in name only. These are the real deal. And how does he know? What gives him such confidence? And therefore, what should we look for in ourselves, personally, and in our church? What are some of the characteristics of genuine saving faith? Or to state it in the context of Paul's words here in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, his choice of you. And what follows is ten praiseworthy virtues that give evidence to the power of God's elective purposes in the lives of the redeemed. So he begins with three characteristics stated in verse three. Everyone can observe these three things and someone who is truly the elect of God. Let me just give you them and then we will look at all of them briefly here this morning. Three evidences, number one, their work of faith. Secondly, their labor of love. Thirdly, their steadfastness of hope. These are foundational to all of the rest. So, 
Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. In other words, they prayed together. The idea here is they mentioned each of these people by name, as I have your names and the elders have your names, as we pray for you. There was no vagueness in their prayers. There was specificity in their prayers. It wasn't just God help the people at Calvary Bible Church of Thessalonica. No, it was, it was help Jake with this and help Philip with this and so on and so forth. And then he says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. And of course, dear friends, this is the first fruit of grace. Number one, their work of faith. You see, genuine saving faith is a gift from God. And it begins with a spirit-empowered boldness that takes over a person's life. And in that, one has a profound, not only objective, but subjective awareness of God's presence in their life. They understand that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which was the rallying cry of the Protestant reformers against the heresy of the Roman Catholic Church. But this faith requires humility. It requires repentance. We know that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And obviously this was evident in the lives of these dear dear, dear saints. Now, put yourself in their position. Imagine what their family and their friends must have thought when they saw these people change so radically. Jews and Gentiles coming together in mutual love for a crucified Savior. People that formerly hated one another are suddenly loving one another. Despite the radical differences in their cultures, in their ethnic backgrounds, even in their languages. You see, the true gospel unites all people under the banner of the blood of Christ puts us all into one body. And what a joy it is to see believers humble themselves and love each other despite the the radical differences. I mean, just think of all the baggage we all have, all the different things we've come out of. We've got people in this auditorium that have ethnic backgrounds from all over the world. But he goes on to speak here of their work of faith, work of faith. Now, this does not speak of salvation by works. It speaks of works produced by faith. And we we know from Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the work of faith that he's describing here speaks of the conduct of faith that or the conduct of of love and godliness that faith produces. That's the idea. He says the work of faith, the original language, the ergon, which speaks of the actual deed, the righteous acts, the accomplishments of faith. And this will always be certain proof of genuine regeneration. When someone is truly born again, when there is truly a spiritual resurrection, That is when the Spirit of God enters a person and by His grace and power there is an instantaneous supernatural impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. 
There's a radical change in one's nature and disposition so that one lives for the glory of God and lives out the Christ-honoring deeds of righteousness. So faith without these kinds of works is what James calls a dead faith in James 2.17. You say you're a Christian and you don't see that? You're deceived. Imagine what this would have looked like. We see in verse 6 and 7 that these dear folks received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Obviously, they did not conform to the culture. Instead, their lives confronted it. Their lives rose above all of the wickedness that was there, all of the insults, all of the accusations that were hurled against them, all of the bitter persecution. And people could look at them and see a noticeable difference. There's something about these people. There's something about their families. There's something about their lives. There's something about this church. And I would ask you, dear friends, can this be said of you? Or are you a camouflaged Christian? Or you just kind of blend in so that nobody will really see who you are and challenge you? Because after all, you're afraid of Satan's kingdom. Notice the second evidence of God's choice of them. And that is their labor of love, verse 3. The term labor uh, it comes from a term that, that refers to that which is grueling, strenuous, exhausting toil. It's like a man that is straining every muscle to climb a steep cliff. They exerted every ounce of their energy, every muscle fiber to somehow build the kingdom of God in their lives and their families and their community for the glory of Christ. This is what drove them. Their genuine love for, for Christ produced within them the power to love their enemies as well as their brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes that is even harder, right? As someone as well said, to dwell above with saints we love will be grace and glory. But to live below with saints we know, now that's a different story. But by the power of the Spirit, that can happen. And we see that all the time in our church, and I rejoice in that. And folks, you must remember, Jews and Gentiles hated each other. And only a miracle of God could bring them together. These extreme differences and bond them in Christ-like love where they prefer one another. And you see, this is the power of gospel regeneration. As Paul said in Colossians 3.11, it produces a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. So there was no movement towards like we have today with the whole social justice thing. That, that, that's not what this is all about. This is only a labor of love that's produced by the power of the Spirit. And of course, love is the first fruit of those who are walking by the Spirit and not by the flesh in Galatians 5.22. It's a certain proof of salvation. In 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. In other words, we know that we've been born again because, here it is, we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So not only were they thankful 
for their work of love and lab- work of faith and labor of love, but also the third evidence of their election, and that is steadfastness of hope. Again, verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God and our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, knowing here carries the idea of knowing the facts and the facts which speak so clearly that the conclusion is obvious. That's the idea in the original language. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. In other words, this is a clear evidence of your election. The term steadfast, it comes from the Greek term hupomone. You're familiar with that. It it's, it's, can be translated endurance or perseverance. It's a willingness to stay under pressure for the glory of God. So this was a persevering church, and their perseverance was inspired by their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, they had a persevering hope as they anticipated all that Christ had done, is doing, and will do for them, as they thought about their inheritance and the glory of the kingdom that is to come. And this is always a motivating power for us to live in the face of suffering and temptation. And of course, Paul was afraid for them, as he was for all of the churches, that the pressure, the cancel culture, if you will, would be so great that they would somehow wilt, that they would wither under the persecution and be tempted to abandon their faith. But they didn't. Now, they did not abandon their faith out of some inner strength, some inner resolution Some, well, we're just going to tough it out. It wasn't done on their own strength. It was done because the Spirit of God had imparted it to them, His indwelling work that caused them to have confidence that Christ would do all that He had promised to do. And they were experiencing this in their life. Is that true of you? This is a Spirit-empowered reality in the life of a true believer. When I talk to people who say they know and love Christ and they don't have this, I have to say, time out, there's something wrong here. 1 John 5, beginning in verse 4, we read, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. True believers are looking for the blessed hope, Paul said in Titus 2.11, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. That is the source of our power. That is a result of regenerating grace, which is a result of our election in eternity past. Do you live in light of his promised return? Or do you just live for... As a lot of people say, just one day at a time. I just live one day at a time. Boy, I don't. I I, I live my whole life in front of me. Yeah, we have to do one day at a time, but I'm looking at the big picture. And the big picture is I've got a few more years to live. I'm going to exhaust myself for the glory of Christ, and I'm going to heaven. I mean, that's what's motivating me. I hope that motivates you. Solomon described this in Proverbs 4.18. He said, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. 
You see, as we traverse this path of life, we don't go from, from, from light to darkness. We go from kind of a diffused light to the clear, resplendent light of the glory of God. We see it clearer and clearer. And the older we get and the more we mature in Christ, the more we see the glorious light of His grace and experience the power of His love until we see Him face to face. Until one day the brilliant light of heaven that was at one time just a glimmer will become a blaze of glory greater than the sun. You see, friends, for the Christian, there is no sunset, only sunrise. Remember that. And the more we commit ourselves to our work of faith, our labor of love, and our steadfastness of hope, the more we are able to transcend the darkness of this world with great joy and power in the spirit. And this was evident in the lives of those people. That's what I want people to see when they look at Calvary Bible Church. Everyone could see their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. But number four, their reception of spirit-empowered preaching. This is fascinating. Notice verse four. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. How so? For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, we know that God has chosen you because our gospel did not come to you by some ordinary discourse, some spoken message, but rather it had a supernatural force behind it that radically changed your lives. It came, he says, in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. By the way, the full conviction here is referring to the immediate effect of the Spirit's power and presence in the hearts of the missionaries who spoke the word. It's not referring to the Thessalonians who heard it. Very important. The Thessalonians heard the message of God and they saw his power in that apostolic proclamation. They saw that. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2 beginning in verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And folks, this is what is desperately lacking in so many churches today. It's Spirit-empowered gospel preaching where men take the Word of God and unpack it and give it to the people and call them to apply these truths to their life in faith and obedience. We don't mean, need men today who are clever and cool, who are somehow witty and funny. We don't need men who are going to somehow start a conversation and find cultural relevance, find common ground. No, we don't need that. We need men who have absolute conviction, as we see here, with full conviction that their message is the word of the living God that carries power, the power of God, to either harden or soften hearts. Men who can fully identify with God's word to Jeremiah when he declared, is not my word like fire and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Indeed it is. These men will bear spiritual fruit in their lives and their ministry. Their churches will persevere and their lives will match their message. Now, like every pastor, the Apostle Paul and his 
co-laborers experienced all manner of slander, malicious slander, betrayal. But his proven character was his greatest shield. And it's for this reason that he says in verse 5 at the end, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You see, in that day, they had traveling philosophers that plied their trade to earn a living. They walked around and they would use great oratory and wow the people with what they had to say to somehow move them in their own political direction to advance their own agenda. But Paul and Silas and the others, they they had a very different motive. Their motive was the salvation of the souls of men for the glory of God. So all they did is just preach the word. Folks, I don't have anything to say to you other than what God says in his word. I'm just his messenger. I'm just his mouthpiece. So they worked hard to not be financially dependent upon them in such a way as to be a burden, and they were willing to suffer persecution that many might be saved, and we see this in their testimony. And so their lives demonstrated the love and the purity and the power of their message. And not only could everyone see the reception of their spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel, number five, they could see their imitation of Christ. Notice in verse six, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. You see, friends, a likeness to Christ is always the greatest validation of genuine saving faith. You say you're a Christian, let's see your Christ-like life. You say you're an apple tree, I want to see the apples, right? Paul and his friends were loving, but they were bold. They were gentle, they were caring, they were compassionate, they were selfless, they were hardworking, they joyfully persevered in persecution, but they were bold with the gospel. Their lives modeled Christ, and the Thessalonians modeled them and therefore imitated Christ. And this theme of imitation is found in some of Paul's letters. We read about it, for example, in Philippians 3.17. He says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. In other words, look at Timothy. Look at Epaphroditus. And practically speaking, you all need to look to other godly people in the sphere of your relationships. You need to hang with them. You need to model your lives after them. You need to learn from them. You get around the wrong people, you'll become like them. 1 Corinthians 4.16, after giving a list of ways they had, conduct, uh, they had conducted themselves in their presence, Paul says, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Friends, can you say that to other people? I want you to look at my life and live your life like I'm living mine. Can you say that? Fathers, wives. Chapter 11, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. You see, Paul understood this. His life provided a model of Christ for people who knew nothing about Christ. Think of all the people that are out there today. They know nothing of what a Christian really looks like. All they see is so much of this phony stuff that's called Christianity on television. They've never been around any man that really loves his wife as Christ loves the church. They've never seen that. 
They don't know what it looks like for a mother to really instill the glorious truths of the gospel in a child and raise them in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. They don't know what that looks like. How are they going to see it unless they see it in you and in me? Verse 6 seems to define their imitation primarily in the way that they received it in great distress. Notice verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of the severe suffering even when you were welcoming our message with joy in the power of the Holy Spirit. You became imitators of us and of Christ. Imitator, mimetai in the original language. You get our word mimic from that. Folks, do you mimic Christ in your life? They did, despite what they knew it would cost them. Oh, dear Christians, what a joy it is to shepherd so many of you that imitate Christ. That's why you're here. Paul also saw, saw, number six, their joy in tribulation. The end of verse six, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it amazing to hear stories of how people have risked their lives to hear the gospel? I mean, we're hearing about this, by the way, all over the world. Even in North Korea, many Muslims coming to faith in Christ. There's stories around the world of people coming to saving faith that far exceeds what we see here in America, where Satan has so deceived so many people. But only genuine saving faith will be accompanied by the joy given by the Holy Spirit. You see, only real faith will welcome the message of the gospel even in the context of severe trial, knowing that it may cost you everything. Only the Spirit of God can pull that off by the power of His Word. Those whose faith is a sham will not persevere in the fires of affliction. They fear man more than they fear God. And what Paul saw in the Thessalonians was true saving faith. Jews and Gentiles that were willing to risk everything, lose their families, become social outcasts, lose their jobs. But folks, we will never survive unless we too receive the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, how we endure trials is one of the greatest evidences of genuine saving faith. And that, the key to that is how we receive the word. You hear it every Sunday. It comes from this pulpit, Sunday school classes, small groups, whatever it is. How do you receive the word? If it's kind of... Be glad when he's done. And when trials come your way, and they will, you will collapse. Number seven, another evidence was their exemplary lifestyles as we move quickly here this morning. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. In other words, because of their joyful reception of the gospel in the face of opposition, they became an example for the rest of the churches in that region. That would include the church at, at Philippi and Berea and Athens and, and Corinth and perhaps Sincrea. And even their enemies could see these, their changed lives. 
Remember, Thessalonica was a thriving seaport city. It was along the, the Via Ignatia Highway that connected them with the Providence, province of Macedonia and beyond. And so the news of their faith and what happened was spreading like wildfire. I mean, they didn't have Facebook. They had road book, you know. They had pathway books, and people spread the word. But I would submit to you that like a tree that endures the strong winds of a storm and thereby digs its roots deep and firmly into the ground, these saints became firmly rooted in Christ as they experienced the winds of persecution. And we must ask ourselves, does my life imitate Christ? Am I an example to others? Am I bold for Christ? And of course, an exemplary lifestyle will also include the eighth evidence of their election, and that's bold evangelism. Verse 8, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. The term sounded forth in the original language is a term used outside uh, the New Testament to describe a loud blast of a blaring trumpet or the rolling of thunder. And because here in this, in this verse it's used in the perfect tense, it carries the idea that their testimony was a constant, continual trumpeting of the gospel. You get around these people, you're going to hear the gospel one way or the other. You're going to see it or you're going to hear it. The ninth evidence was the reversal of their allegiances in verse 9. He says, and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. You see, Gentile idol worship was at the core of everything that they did. And it was dangerous to somehow worship another God and not worship the patron gods of that community. Gentiles belonged to trade guilds, which was their version of unions, and each trade guild had their own patron gods or goddesses. And so one's livelihood, one's career depended on that particular god, if it was the god of agriculture or whatever, and it assured their f fertility, and everyone honored the gods of their local government. And when Businesses went well. They praised the God of their particular union and so forth. Depending upon the area of their residence, people honored uh, the ruling Caesar as God. So th these gods were at the core of everything they did. But these people, they come to Christ and they reject all of those. And we have many people today that, that honor the God of COVID. Or they worship King Fauci. Or you lose your job, you know. I mean, you have all of these things going on. And some of you have lost your job because of these things. I know. Yet these early believers jettisoned all of their superstitions. And they boldly turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. Rather than these non-existent false gods. By the way, the term serve here does not mean they attended church. That's not what this is referring to. They didn't just start attending some new church and start hanging out with friends to do some stuff time to time. No, no, no. The term serve comes from the Greek word that means to serve as a slave. They gave themselves. These saints reversed their allegiances. 
and they abandoned their slavery to false gods and by God's grace they became slaves to the living and the true God. An internal, wholehearted, joyful commitment to be devoted to God. And then finally, the last evidence of their election is an eager anticipation of Christ's return. Notice verse 10. He says, and to wait for his son. Wait here in the original language carries the idea of a a sustained expectation. You wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. I mean, think about it. They had been utterly transformed by his first coming, so now they patiently and excitedly awaited his second coming. I can identify with that. I hope you can. They knew that God had raised him from the dead. They knew that he was alive. They knew that he would return to rescue them from the wrath to come. Referring to God's settled indignation against sin. Which, by the way, increases daily against sinners because of their idolatry and their immorality and the rejection of the gospel. True believers will have a sustained, unwavering expectation that the Lord Jesus Christ will fulfill all of his promises and that he will return one day as King of kings and Lord of lords. And the redeemed will glory in this doctrine and live their lives in light of it. Oh, dear friends, I pray that this will be your social identity, that this will be the social identity of this church, that people will look at us and see these virtues, a work of faith, a labor of love, steadfastness of hope, reception of spirit-empowered preaching, imitation of Christ, joy in tribulation, exemplary lifestyles, bold evangelism, a reversal of allegiances, and an eager anticipation of Christ's return. So that through the testimony of our mouths and the testimony of our lives, many will come to faith in our precious Savior and coming King. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths that resonate so profoundly in each of our hearts. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you will bring conviction to those who know nothing of what it really means to be reconciled to a holy God through faith in Christ who have never truly experienced the miracle of regeneration, who know nothing of these virtues that we've just examined. Lord, save them by your grace, even as you have saved us. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, we will be a people that live out these virtues in such a way as to bring great glory to our Savior and King, the Lord Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.